This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. In this edition of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Leonard Farber, a board-certified radiation oncologist and healthcare executive. Dr. Farber is recognized for his ability to identify groundbreaking technologies and position them for success in clinical practice. He recently joined Emmet Health, an emerging medical device company with a state-of-the-art device for providing radiation as a treatment for breast cancer. Dr. Faber joined the company as the chief medical officer and the executive vice president of clinical research. Dr. Faber also works with a large number of pioneering startups focusing on health and medicine, including companies such as Prelude DX. In today's program, we talk about ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS, and decision RT, the only risk assessment test for patients with this disease that predicts radiation therapy benefit. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. The Oncogene Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncogene, at oncogene.com, where you find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. For information on how to support a program, visit our website at oncogene.com. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER, that is C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. On the phone with me is Dr. Leonard Faber. Dr. Faber is the Chief Medical Officer and Executive Vice President for Clinical Research of Emmet Health. Dr. Faber, welcome to the Youngest in Brief. Hey, thank you for having me. You are a board-certified radiation oncologist. You've helped to treat patients who were diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ. Now, before we're going to talk about diagnostics and treatment options, tell me a little bit more about this form of cancer. What is ductal carcinoma in situ? I think that's a great place to start because there are a lot of preconceptions of what it is and what it isn't. So ductal carcinoma in situ, and the acronym is DCIS, it's a type of cancer of the cells that line the breast ducts. And the ducts are these very thin tubes that carry the milk within the breast. Um, It's considered to be a stage zero breast cancer, but it is still a type of cancer. Yeah, sometimes it's referred to as pre-invasive or precancerous, but it is the type of cancer that does not spread. And that's where the term in situ comes from. So it's non-invasive cancer cells that do not spread. Now, if you look at a typical patient, what are the risk factors associated with DCIS? The main risk factors for uh, DCIS or ductal carcinoma in situ are are very similar to risk factors for invasive breast cancer. We look at family history of breast cancer, a patient who may have had a personal history of other non-cancerous breast conditions, uh, for example, something called atypical hyperplasia or atypical ductal hyperplasia. We look at genetic mutations that are associated with breast cancer. Um, Everyone's familiar with the BRCA or BRCA genes, so genes one and two. Um, A late pregnancy, um, becoming pregnant after the age of 30, 
taking uh, estrogen or progestin hormone replacement therapy for a significant number of years after menopause, um, and, and probably uh, even a high body mass index, so obesity, excess body fat uh, in relation to the patient's height is also a risk factor. So you have everything from genetics to um, to uh, environmental, and you have things that the patients can affect themselves. It sounds to me that there are many different potential risk factors. What if someone recognizes some signs or symptoms before being diagnosed? Something that may concern the patient or their partner. Tell me a little bit about this, because in the initial development of ductal carcinoma in situ, there is not an immediate or obvious diagnosis. Is that correct? Correct. For the most part, unless uh, it has become very advanced, it's typically something we'll find on a diagnostic study, such as a mammogram, um, an ultrasound, an MRI. But after a period of time, especially if left undiagnosed, you can have clinical findings. You could find uh, a change in the skin of the breast tissue. You can see redness. Um, it can even become palpable. Uh, we see that actually a lot more in Europe than in the United States, and that just may be uh, differences in terms of, of follow-up, in terms of guidelines for uh, screening and that sort of thing. Now, about these guidelines, the ones that we have here in the United States, there are certain guidelines dealing with screening. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, it's constantly evolving. We typically in the United States follow the American Cancer Society guidelines. So the indications for for patients between the ages of 40 and 44, those are really discretionary. Um, that would be for women who've had a personal history of breast cancer or, or, or high risk factors for breast cancer, one of them being genetic component or having a strong family history. We start to kind of get into a grayer zone for women between 45 and 54. If they've had one or more breast cancer risks, those are usually recommended for once per year. Um, and now for women 55 and older who are otherwise in good health, we go into every other year. But we've seen those change, the guidelines over the years, but this is currently where we aren't for the American Cancer Society. And, and, and it's confusing for patients, you know, and often scary if you're younger and you're worried about your risk factors. So if you, again, if you have a, a strong family history, uh, strong personal history, then typically you're at an, an, an annual screening. Some patients may have previous incidents of breast cancer. This form of cancer, ductal carcinoma in situ, is an early stage of breast cancer, sometimes referred to as stage zero. But can this form of breast cancer occur in parallel with other forms of cancer, maybe a later stage or more invasive form of breast cancer? Or is this diagnosis of DCIS always the first time that someone is being diagnosed with breast cancer? Well, you know, you can get an invasive breast cancer and have ductal carcinoma at the same time. Oftentimes during a biopsy uh, or even the lumpectomy, which is the surgical part of the treatment, or even a mastectomy, you can see both DCIS and invasive breast cancers combined. 
So DCIS is often treated because of its higher risk of becoming an invasive breast cancer over time if left untreated. I think of it as being on, the, on, on a spectrum from stage zero to one, two, three, four, two. And in that spectrum, we're going from the lowest um, or highest curable type of cancer to less and less curable as we become more advanced staging. But we re- the, the goal is to treat it when it's at its earliest stage. Right. That earlier stage is just to make sure that uh, people are going to be screened, uh, to make sure that cancer can be detected early, right? Exactly. Now, let's talk a little bit about treatment options, because there may be a little bit of confusion about the treatment options in general. For the majority of women that may be diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ, what are the treatment options that are available? You know, it's it's really a great question, and it sounds simple. We'll start with the simplest answer, but it does get complex. So the standard of care would be to do either a breast conservation surgery plus radiation, and this is where we'll get into a bit more detail, or a mastectomy. We're also looking at subcategories of patients who can just get away with uh, lumpectomy alone, or sometimes even for very elderly patients who have other high-risk factors, is actually to leave it untreated, which is very, very uncommon. So that's not something we usually will advocate. The two categories, so coming back to the original answer, is to do a breast conservative surgery approach, which is typically a lumpectomy or partial mastectomy, and that's followed by radiation therapy. And there are many forms of radiation therapy after surgery. You can do external beam to the entire breast. You can do external beam to a partial breast. You can do internal radiation, so using radioactive implants. Typically, you will add on a hormonal therapy, an estrogen blocker, such as tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, and that can go hand in hand with the radiation. And then on the other side of the spectrum, the more invasive uh, type of procedure is to do a, a mastectomy. And typically, a mastectomy will not require radiation afterwards, but uh, patients may still require hormonal therapy. So when you look at the last option, mastectomy, that means that there may be a need for reconstructive surgery. Is that part of the treatment options that are out there? Yeah, well, reconstructive surgery is is really discretionary because it, 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 it becomes more of a cosmetic and obviously psychological issue. Um, it's not part of a cancer curative approach. So the reconstruction, the idea is to um, cosmetically have, if you're doing a single mastectomy, is to try to match and have a woman have a sense of completion or a wholeness again. And that's hence the psychological impact. But it's not required in order to achieve a goal of cure for DCIS. Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, in this episode of The Young Team Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Leonard Farber, a board-certified radiation oncologist and healthcare executive. Dr. Farber is recognized for his ability to identify groundbreaking technologies, and he can also position them for success in clinical practice. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Young Team Brief. The 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is encouraging cancer patients and survivors to be extra cautious during the COVID-19 pandemic. Cancer treatment, especially chemotherapy, weakens the immune system, making you at higher risk of severe illness. Dr. Lisa Richardson is director of the CDC's Division of Cancer Prevention and Control. Take these steps to stay healthy. Wash your hands often with soap and water. Clean and disinfect frequently touch surfaces daily. Stay home. If you must leave, keep at least six feet between you and others. Avoid touching your face, eyes, nose, and mouth with unwashed hands. If your temperature is 100.4 or higher, call your doctor. Use CDC's coronavirus self-checker to help you make decisions about seeking medical care. Make sure your caregivers and household members are aware of your higher risk and take precautions. Visit cdc.gov backslash coronavirus and preventcancerinfections.org for more health tips. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkers in Brief. If you're just joining us today, in today's episode of the Yonkers in Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Leonard Farber, a board-certified radiation oncologist and healthcare executive. Let me go back to the available treatment options. Patients may be concerned that after treatment, a cancer may, over time, recur. Is that also the case with DCIS? And if that's the case, what are the treatment options at that time? Yes, very much so. If you go back historically before advances in radiation, DCIS was typically treated by a mastectomy. And as we advanced in our screening, as we advanced in our treatment, we started to explore lumpectomies, again, also called partial mastectomies, followed by radiation. So with or without radiation therapy. Now, historical studies going back several decades ago, have shown that for the majority of women, and we're going to start in a very general uh, sense of of data, that for the majority of women, radiation will will add a benefit in terms of preventing the risk of, of breast cancer from recurring, meaning it will prevent the risk of DCIS coming back and prevent the risk of anything coming back within that same breast. So DCIS and or invasive breast cancers. I use the term historical because the recent data have changed. The historical data has shown that if you add radiation after you do a breast conservation surgery, you have a decrease in recurrence rate about 50%. And that's historical. And today we're going to get a little bit into the more details of Decision RT to show how those numbers have shifted in a very positive way with this genomics assay. That's also one of the things that came out during the last few meetings of the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Now, tell me a little bit about this, because there are a lot of different components, right? There is the diagnostic part, and the diagnostic part can be very complex because there are different steps in there. And one element is the genetic component. Tell me a little bit about that component and how that may benefit patients. For example, a patient trying to figure out if the cancer is an early cancer or is there a familiar link to that. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. And if you don't mind, we'll talk a little bit about how we look at risk within the molecular 
uh, tissue, if you will. So I'm going to I'm going to go step uh, uh, go back an additional step. And the way that we've looked at these the risk of recurrences before genomics was to look specifically what we call the clinical pathologic factors. It was looking at, under the microscope, looking at the size of the lesion, the grade of the lesion, okay? So grade one, two, or three, or low, intermediate, and high grade, looking at the palpability of the tumor and looking at patient's age. Those were risk factors, even margin status. But today, using genomics, we're looking at other markers. And, and for the last decade, uh, and even more so, we, we've, we've had to find out what markers are going to help us determine these risk factors. What, what I call the next generation DCIS test or assay, the decision or T assay, looks at hormone receptors such as progesterone receptor, something called FOXA1. It looks at HER2. It looks at the proliferation receptors. How aggressive are these cells? It looks at stress response receptors and cell cycle checkpoint inhibitors. Now, those are very fancy terms or, or names for assessing critical pathways that affect these recurrence rates. And you take all of those and you look at historical data, go back and look at these um, critical pathways and determine how much they affect the recurrence rate. And you combine them with these clinical pathologic features, and now you, you develop an algorithm. And this algorithm determines the risk factors for a recurrence rate. And that's very different than what we have done for the last several decades, which was just to look at the grade and size and age under a, uh, uh, under a microscope and these other you know clinical features. So we've advanced. This is this is really precision medicine. You know we're going clinical path to molecular biology, and that's a huge advancement. You just mentioned precision medicine. We've talked about precision medicine in the Oncogene Brief before, and it seems to me that physicians and healthcare professionals and scientists and researchers all have different understanding about what precision medicine actually is. One of my co-workers used to kind of joke about this, saying that medicine should always be personalized and always be precise. Now, those terms may mean something else for healthcare professionals than they mean for a patient or a physician or a scientist or a researcher. Tell me a little bit about where we are with the right definition of precision medicine at this moment. You know, that's, that's really a great question. And, and what you said is very true. We, we, we should be very precise in what we do. The difference in what precision medicine is, is that it's using, using very specific information about a patient's tumor to help them come up with a treatment plan. So usually now we refer to that as looking at their own genes or proteins, but it's taking the patient's specific information using their genetic understanding, their genetic makeup to, to really um, understand where their treatment planning can be for them specifically. So when a few minutes ago I was mentioning some of those critical pathways, those are the exact components that we're looking at uh, today to assess a patient's response to treatment. So that's what makes it precision medicine. 
And it is a precise way, if you will, of figuring out their best treatment options. And that's always going to evolve as, as we in the medical community learn more and more. So you never stop evolving and you never stop improving the, the precision of that approach. Now, often precision medicine and knowing more about the individual patient and their genetic makeup would, to put it in simple terms, allow doctors to diagnose and really target the things they find. We're looking at an era of targeted therapies. How does that apply to your work and, and how does it fit in there? Yeah, and you're exactly right. I and mean, this is part of targeted therapy. Um, typically, when we talk about targeted therapy, we're referring often to drug therapy or uh, or chemotherapy that's targeting specific receptors or cells. It is combined in this approach, but with radiation therapy, which is what we're exploring more and more, it's not really targeted to the cells themselves in response to radiation. It's a clinical response to radiation based on the person's genetic makeup. So a little bit different in thinking of, of, of a targeted therapy. I think precision therapy is a bit more accurate, molecular approach to precision therapy, but it, it, it is personalized. And sometimes people confuse targeted with personalized. So I think of this as more of a personalized precision therapy approach. Let's take a short break and then we're back with Dr. Leonard Farber, a board-certified radiation oncologist and healthcare executive. Hi, I'm Paul Schmidt, one of the many voices of the Oncozine Brief. Each week we'll update you about the latest news and information about cancer, cancer diagnoses, cancer treatment, and cancer prevention. We'll tell you what you need to know and why it matters. To learn more, text the word cancer to 66866 and we'll email you our free newsletter or go to Oncozine at www.oncozine.com. The Oncozine Brief is produced by Sun Valley Communication in association with Physicians Weekly and the American Association of Medical Education. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others, huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Oncozine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Oncozine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Leonard Faber, a board-certified radiation oncologist and healthcare executive. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncozine Brief. Now, let's talk a little bit about clinical trials. 
you're involved with clinical trials focusing on ductal carcinoma in situ. And as we have seen during the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in December last year, there is a lot going on, not only in DCIS, but in a diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer in general. Now, on a more general level, when you look at breast cancer, what are some of the most remarkable developments you've seen over the last couple of years, and how does that impact physicians and their patients? Well, we've seen an evolution uh, in, in terms of trying to determine the best approach. I'm going to focus a little bit more so here on DCIS. Um, in in, in, in trying to determine which patients would benefit the most from the addition of radiation therapy, because we've tried to find subgroups that won't require radiation therapy, because there have to be some low risk groups. There have to be there has to be patients who don't necessarily benefit from the radiation, and that's an important distinction because we don't want to overtreat. You know, if you don't need a therapy, we don't want to give it. And for years, we've used clinical pathologic features alone. And that helped get to that initial historic benefit of 50%. But the organization that we're talking about, Prelude DX, who has the assay, this decision RT assay, what they've done is using four different cohorts, different studies in over 1,500 patients, where they've taken the slides from studies, so patients who've had radiation or not radiation, and they took their actual slides and they've run the assay on it. And what they did was, having known what type of treatment the patients had after they ran the assay, they showed that if you select out the right group of patients who will benefit from the radiation, and, and they call these the elevated risk patients, you could have, and, there, and this is what they've demonstrated, at least a 70% reduction in recurrence rate. And now we're seeing numbers uh, greater than 75% as we're getting more precise as to which patients benefit. So, so that's a very important distinction. It's saying that not every patient benefits by 50%. That was the old historical viewpoint. What it's saying is, if you select out the patients who will benefit from this treatment, you're going to reduce that recurrence rate even more so. So you're taking the patients who don't need radiation, you're not giving it to them, and you're shifting patients over to who will need radiation that we thought didn't need it before. At the San Antonio Breast Cancer Society meeting just recently, referred to in 2020, they looked at patients who, based on older trials, were considered to be low risk. And what they found was that looking at their slides, so they took that risk criteria that was low, and by analyzing their slides with this assay, they found uh, a significant number of patients actually would benefit from radiation therapy. And so one of the things this the company has done is said, are we if knowing that information, are physicians shifting their treatment uh, designs? And we're seeing a shift of approximately 45% in terms of deciding who will need radiation versus who doesn't. Um, to, to just sort of reword this, we're, we're showing, and this is very important because you know, physicians look at data 
And what they do with their data is very important. Are they just, you know, is this a didactic review or is this something that's going to impact on patient treatment? And we're seeing a significant impact. And that's very important because we're validating the data based on studies and physicians are listening and applying it now to their treatment algorithms. That means when you use this assay, you can split out the group of patients that are diagnosed with DCIS and really target or adjust their treatment to their specific needs, whether they may benefit from a lumpectomy or a treatment combination of radiation or other therapies. I mean, you can be very specific to find out a patient's needs. Is that the right thing to describe this? Yeah, exactly. So... It's an accurate assay. It quantifies a risk assessment. And and that's very important because it's predicting the radiation therapy benefit for these patients. And and it's telling us that not all patients benefit the same. So we're we're saying that you can have patients who don't benefit at all and they could just simply have a lumpectomy uh, versus the patients who are very elevated risk who will benefit significantly from the addition of radiation. And because, you know, going back to our first definition um, of, of DCIS, a lot of patients have thought of it as stage zero, meaning I don't need to do anything for it. Right. So what we're demonstrating for those patients is, well, you may fall into a low risk category of the, uh, within that uh, diagnosis and, and a lumpectomy be just enough for what you need for treatment. But it's important to realize, again, that this is on the spectrum. You may be moving more towards an invasive breast cancer, whereby the radiation will significantly decrease the risk of you of this tumor coming back, either as DCS or, even more importantly, coming back as an invasive breast cancer. Right. And, 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 and now... This algorithm, the assay, uses an algorithm that combines the biology and the old clinical pathologic features to individually assess the patient's risk. Uh-huh. So a patient can feel better about the decision-making process that the, the, when they sit down and have a discussion with the radiation oncologist and the breast surgeon, they're, they're, ha- they're given substantial evidence to support a treatment recommendation. And that's very important because we like to treat based on empiric data, data that's validated and substantiated. When you look at this relatively new approach and you look back maybe 10, 15 years, the approach may be very different. I understand that there are clinical trials or studies being conducted today that look at so-called reclassification of earlier diagnostics. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, the the actual development of the assay began as part of a uh, research uh, protocol. It was it, it going back to 2002. So it seems very recent to, for us because it's now becoming uh, utilized clinically. But it started with an NIH and NCI grant from UCSF and Yale. Um, it wasn't until Prelude became involved in the development and validation of it. That's going back to even 2017. The initial, um, I guess, cohorts 
started these studies in, in about that time, 2007 to 2014. It wasn't until about 2014 that we started to get into the blinded validation and, and randomized trials. So it, this is a, a, a process of development that is well over a decade, you know, almost two decades now. And, and the reason is you need that 10-year data follow-up in order to validate what we're seeing. So studies are really predicated on having enough patients and having enough data to follow to see if these assays or whatever it is you're looking at actually works. Right. Does that answer your question enough? Yes, it does. It's interesting because this approach really helps to look at the group of patients and make sure that they receive not only the accurate diagnostics, but potential treatments that are really catering to their specific needs. Correct. And, and when I was referring to the, um, the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, the 2020 presentation, what that did was it, it looked at some of the other publications um, something called um, RTOG. That was a, 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 a study group, and, and specifically it was RTOG 9804, okay? And that study tried to determine good risk profiles or low risk. Similar, there's another study called ECOG 5194, and they also tried to determine which patients were considered to be low risk. Um, but when we, and, and those are really only based on those clinical pathologic features. However, when you looked at those and you, you looked at them from the criteria for decision RT assay, it actually was found that a significant number of those patients would benefit from radiation therapy. So you have different studies, but when you apply a more modern approach to that, so you're not negating those clinical pathologic features because the studies are are helpful and they provide good information. But what we're looking to do is improve upon that. We're saying, okay, we we get that these patients are low risk based on clinical pathologic features. But now we have an assay to take that a step forward. Is to and the design is to add biology to those clinical pathologic features. And when you do so, you now increase the, the, the precision of who will benefit. And that's a very important distinction because we're, we're saying now, we're not negating what the other studies have shown. We're, in fact, we're agreeing with it, but we're saying, hey, can we further categorize the patients and say, well, maybe there are some in that low risk category that will benefit. And that's actually what the studies have shown. And this is not only benefiting the oncologist, but basically it's benefiting the whole the multidisciplinary team involved with the treatment of these patients. Let's take a short break, and then we're back with Dr. Leonard Farber, a board-certified radiation oncologist and healthcare executive. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited 
and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to curesarcoma.org. This is the Yakazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Yakazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Leonard Farber, a board-certified radiation oncologist and healthcare executive. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosine Brief. Now, early this year, in an article you wrote for our online journal Oncosine, you wrote about this multidisciplinary team approach. How important is this approach? Yes, and it's important for the decision-making process on the part of the medical team. For example, with breast cancer, with DCIS, your team typically consists of your breast surgeon, your radiation oncologist, You have a medical oncologist or hematology oncologist. Um, You have a radiologist who's reviewing the images, and you have a pathologist who is reviewing the slides. With a multidisciplinary approach, meaning all of those different disciplines combined together, you look at everything as as a whole for the patient. So you're not just having the breast surgeon come up with one concept, the radiation another. You're taking into account all of the features of the patient combined. um, And with that, you are coming up with a comprehensive approach. So typically this will be done at something called a tumor boards. Some centers have a, a breast cancer specific tumor boards and you're reviewing everything at once. When you do so and you come up with a strategic approach, the next step for a patient in the process is to then sit down with their team members. It is typically done on a specialty basis. So they'll sit down with the breast surgeon, they'll have another consultation with a radiation oncologist, another one with medical oncologist. But having had a multidisciplinary approach, the idea is for the patient to get one unified answer. The problem that we had before Decision RT is that there was this gray zone of who would benefit from radiation. And that's that's a problem. Uh, it's a problem for a patient who's relying on their physician to give them a good guideline. And what this does is it simplifies the process. So the, the breast surgeon can say to the patient, you know, we'll send you to the radiation oncologist, but they will discuss this this new assay that helps with the decision making, and we can review it after the results are in. And it's a way to unify the the treatment recommendations, and that's important. This is a treatment recommendation guideline, so it's not the end all be all. Uh, hardcore way to treat. You take into account always a patient's decision. You take into account their health, what their needs and wants are, and you use this as just another tool in the arsenal to give a strong treatment recommendation. 
it's just much easier to sit with a patient and have this printed out form that shows their specific tumor, their specific risk of recurrence with or without radiation at 10 years. And that's very helpful for the patient to see that. So it really is helpful for the patient. It may take away a little bit of their concern, the fear that they may have. And so it plays a role in what we've discussed earlier when we were talking about reconstructive surgery. And while it may alleviate some of the patient's fear, it may make them feel better about the potential treatment options, including radiation therapy. Is that a fair thing to say? That's, that's a wonderfully fair thing to say because there's the fear of treatment with a mastectomy, but there is a very prevalent fear of radiation therapy, so much so that patients can sometimes opt for mastectomy before even discussing with the radiation oncologist. With this assay, let's say a breast surgeon runs the assay and they see a strong benefit to the radiation therapy. It might just be enough to get the patient to come in and discuss radiation with the the radiation oncologist because a lot of these fears are, are, are not based on techniques today. They're not based on science today. A lot of it is, you know, fear, fear is fear for whatever the, the, the causes are. But if you can alleviate that fear with facts, you can shift a patient into a treatment that overall will be better for them, you know, from a psychological standpoint and understanding true side effects from treatment versus what you may uh, read or, or find online or hear um, from, from other people who have never even been through it. The goal of, of, of alleviating fear is to do so with actual information, with facts. And, you know, a patient can't get that information until they see their physician. I mean, you can get some on, on, on the Internet but, and you can read, but you really want to sit down with your physician and say, what, what's best for me? And, and I find that when patients do come in, they, they leave, I would like to just say they pleasantly surprised because they've generated this concept of what radiation therapy would be like. And, and again, so much so that sometimes patients come in almost set on doing a mastectomy or double mastectomy because of what they fear radiation would be like. You really have a tool that helps in reducing the fear while improving the quality of decision-making. And with that, we're at the end of our program today. Thank you so much, Dr. Farber, for sharing the latest information and the developments about ductal carcinoma in situ and breast cancer. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. The possibility of getting cancer is pretty scary. And when cancer hits, where do you get the right information about diagnosis and treatment? Who helps you understand that it's okay to be afraid and that it's okay to be scared? I'm Paul Schmidt, and this is the Oncozine Brief. Each week, we'll update you about the latest news and information about cancer and cancer treatment. We'll help you with suggestions on how you can talk to your doctor and ask the important questions you need to know so you can take the right steps in planning your treatment. We'll ask the experts and tell you what you need to know and why it matters. To learn more, text the word CANCER to 66866 and we'll email you our free newsletter or visit www.oncazine.com. The Oncazine Brief is produced by Sun Valley Communication 
in association with Physicians Weekly and the American Association of Medical Education. In the United States, over 60,000 women are newly diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS, each year, accounting for an estimated 18 to 25% of the total number of newly diagnosed breast tumors. Fortunately, DCIS is a highly curable disease with a 10-year cancer-specific survival of about 97%. Because DCIS is a forerunner of invasive breast cancer and it is often referred as a precancer, early diagnosis and treatment are crucial for reducing the risk of developing invasive breast cancer. Current treatment strategies include breast-conserving surgery with radiation therapy, breast-conserving surgery alone, mastectomy or observation. Now, as we've heard from Dr. Faber, a recent survey demonstrated that 53% of DCIS patients' risk score were underclassified and 34% were overclassified using traditional methods, resulting in overtreatment and undertreatment. And we've heard Dr. Faber also talk about Prelude DX. During the 2020 San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, the company presented clinical outcomes data on the company's commercially available test, DecisionRT. For more information about this, visit the company's website, preludedx.com. And for more information about Emmet Health, visit the company's website, emmethealth.com. For us here at the Oncosine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors, and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes and Spotify. For more information about supporting the Oncosine Brief, go to oncosine at oncosine.com. If you are living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hovland, and this is the Oncosine Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced by Sun Valley Communication in association with Physicians Weekly and the American Association of Medical Education. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncazine at www.oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medical-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.